2: It's Friday, March 28th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney.
3: And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
2: You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at InquiringShow, and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast.
3: This episode is sponsored by the International Rescue Committee, leading the way from harm to home for millions uprooted and threatened by conflict, disaster, and persecution. Learn more about the IRC's life-saving programs in the U.S. and 40 countries around the world at rescue.org. Most people think of a career in science as a pretty safe choice. Uh, If a kid tells her parents that she wants to be a scientist when she grows up, most parents will encourage her, as opposed to, say, becoming an opera singer or a trapeze artist. But the truth is that getting into and staying in academia for the length of a career is no less risky. That's why only about 20% of postdocs, not graduate students, postdocs, those who have chosen another two to five years of training after they get a PhD, actually get jobs in academia. If you were considering going to law school, for example, and someone told you that your odds of ever becoming a lawyer were one in five, would you still do it? Probably not. And so we talk about the dearth of scientists in this country, but in fact, there might be a dearth of science jobs, but there's a surplus of people who want to be scientists, who train for years to do just that. Now, traditionally, this is where the government would step in, but funding for science has been stagnant or decreasing in the last decade. So what do all those people whose passion is science do? A novel strategy is currently being pioneered by today's guest. Ethan Perlstein was a highly successful graduate student and postdoc. He did his undergrad at Columbia, his PhD at Harvard, and his postdoc at Princeton. He's no slouch. And yet, when he went on the job market for a tenure-track academic job, he realized that his chances of getting hired were actually pretty small. So he took a different route and launched his own lab. He's raised money from private donors, partnered with companies, dipped into crowdfunding... What he's doing is not your typical startup company or science lab. He's finding alternative sources for funding of basic research. And he's killing it. For example, he recently capitalized on the success of the TV show Breaking Bad to raise $25,000 via crowdfunding to fund a project that he called Building a Meth Lab. And the goal was to find out how methamphetamines damage brain cells. He might be a rogue independent scientist now, but he also might represent a very real and tractable future for many scientists in this country. So here's a clip from our interview where Pearlstein explains the really tough situation for postdocs who want to go into academia and why he decided to try a different route.
1: I just thought, well, I was going to spend two years on on this job search. And then people sort of mentors and other sort of senior people were just saying, well, that's just de rigueur. You're going to spend three or four years on the job search. And I just thought, well... You know, I feel like a lot of my contemporaries who didn't go into graduate school, you know, they're now executives in their whatever industry they're in and have kids. And sort of I felt like like a lot of academics, you know, that that stuff just kind of inevitably gets delayed as you're just consumed with the science and, and doing that stuff. And so I guess I just thought, well, I don't want to keep waiting anymore. The time I was 33 and thought, well, I'm also seeing the statistic that says that the average age at which an independent biomedical researcher gets their first big grant from the NIH is 43 or 42. I just thought another 10 years of just sort of waiting around for my turn of line. I just thought I, I just don't want to do this. I, I really want to have my science have meaning now. And, and, and so I just didn't want to wait.
2: So I don't know if you know that in the year two thousand six, Elias Zerhouni, who was at the time George W. Bush's head of the National Institutes of Health, he had a kind of an essay in Science magazine on this whole problem that Pearlstein is talking about, and he had this kind of amazing quote. What he wrote was, "Like farmers during difficult times, we should not eat our seed corn but protect it." And what he's doing is he's actually likening the younger generation of scientists to corn that you could either plant or you could eat, but if you plant it then it can grow into many more things. It's sort of a weird analogy in some ways, but clearly you want to plant the talent, you want to have good soil for it, you want to let it grow, but we've created this terrible context for this. And since Zerhouni's time running the NIH, it doesn't seem like it's getting any better. And a country that really, really cared about science, I don't think it would have let this happen.
3: Yeah, I mean, it seems to be a really complicated issue. And a lot of people are talking about it now, which is why I thought, you know, this is a great time for us to interview someone who's doing it totally differently. So, you know, people have said, we should just, you know, increase government funding. But that's also partly how we got into this mess, right? When the funding was increased in the 90s, everyone flocked to science thinking they would get jobs. But then the administration changed, right? And so all of a sudden, priorities shifted, and that funding hasn't materialized the way it was supposed to. So, you know, I don't really know what the solution is just yet. But I think the point is, is that we really need to start thinking outside the box.
2: Maybe the solution is legislators having a more of a long term vision of what the consequences of funding decisions are. Oh, no, wait, that wouldn't happen.
3: <laughs> well, okay, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> That could help. That could definitely help.
2: So that, that's going to be our interview for today. Uh, and we're looking forward to, but first, some big climate change news to talk about. So on Sunday, two days from the release of this show, from now, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change releases what is called, uh, the Working Group Two summary for policymakers for its fifth assessment report now i know that's all very confusing let me break it down working group 1 came out last september and this is where they report on the the big international scientific consensus on the science of climate change this working group 2 which we're getting now is all about the science of adaptation of the impacts climate change is having, of the vulnerability that we have to it, what it is doing to us, what it is doing to humans. So obviously there's tons of different things to talk about in this report because every part of the world is affected a little differently by climate change. There's all different kinds of impacts. There is the impact on the availability of fresh water, there is how it affects extreme weather in all of the different places. So there's tons of content. Uh, but on the eve of the release of this report, one of our great climate desk reporters, Tim McDonald, actually spoke to one of the experts involved, David Lobel of Stanford University, who studies this important, important area of climate change impacts, which is what it's going to do to food security, agriculture, and the availability and the price of food. And when uh, Tim spoke with Lobel, he was actually in Yokohama, Japan, uh, where the report is being released. And so he's been on on a long trip and he's a little tired. But I want to play for you this brief interview that Tim did with an expert on food security.
4: There are nearly 900 million undernourished people on the planet today, according to the UN, so feeding the world's population is already enough of a challenge without climate change. But as the global population leaps past 9 billion by mid-century, droughts, heat waves, and other climate change impacts are expected to throw an additional wrench in the works. Environmental scientist David Lobel says this year's IPCC aimed to look at the complete food picture, from seeds to serving platters.
5: You know, one of the... The innovations of this report, I think, has been more of an emphasis on on risk as opposed to just talking about impacts that we know will happen. It's more about the the risk across all the impacts that could happen.
4: David, in your own section, which deals with uh, food security, could could you tell us a little bit about you know what exactly is involved with this chapter, and you know what are some of the most important ways in which our understanding of this issue has changed or advanced uh, since the last IPCC back in two thousand and seven.
5: One of the clear differences, I think, is that this is the first time that we've really broadened um, beyond just talking about the production aspects of food to to thinking about all of the different dimensions that affect food security, or you know, the people's ability to eat. Food security is more than um, just about agriculture. We have a lot of um, discussion of the different pathways that climate change could affect food security besides production, things like conflict that will often affect a, a country's ability to provide food, etc. Every agricultural system in the world still is is quite dependent on weather. So the main basis for concern is that we see aspects of the weather changing fast enough that it will have you know, significant effects. But it's in order to be able to start to quantify what the impacts, what the cost might be, what kind of possibilities are there for adapting so that those, the, you know, for example, the different types of varieties that are grown or the different practices that are used, is there a lot of scope there for, for blunting the impacts of climate change?
4: Something we hear from climate change skeptics frequently is that more CO2 in the atmosphere might be good for crops. Um, how does that yeah. kind of factor in, and, and what what's our state of knowledge about uh, that side of the food security equation?
5: More CO two certainly raises yields and it and improves the um, the water use efficiency, so the amount of water that plants need. Uh, that is uh, undisputed, and that is incorporated into all of the work that we look at, or at least most of the studies that we use are able to incorporate that. Um, so that's discussed very clearly. You know, the effects of CO two are certainly the the silver lining in the in the effects of emissions on agriculture. It's just that in general, those don't appear to be big enough to outweigh some of the other aspects that come along with that high CO2, namely the, the changes in temperature and, and other factors. We aren't committed in any sense to a world that's very warm in 2100. If we, if we um, cut emissions, it would make a huge difference for impacts.
3: So it sounds like there's a lot of issues here that, and then, you know, the fact that this report is so big, as Tim mentions, uh, is a little bit daunting. But, you know, at least I'm thrilled that there's a lot of scientists who are working on these problems.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, and, you know, I think the real question is, can you shift the story of climate change, take it down from the atmosphere where it's all sciencey and chemistry and what's carbon dioxide and how do we know that it's having this effect and take it down to where real people live and how it is affecting them. And if you do that, then you finally get people to care.
3: Yeah. And of course, the story is always more complicated than you think it is. So, Chris, there's something else that caught my attention in the news this week. And it was a bit of apropos of our discussion about basketball and the hot hand last week. You know, did you know that there is a higher percentage of young athletes that die from sudden heart attacks playing basketball than virtually any other sport? No,
2: totally not. It's news to me.
3: And it's, you know, and those kinds of deaths are really devastating, right? You know, you see these young athletes that seem very fit, the peak of their physical condition, and all of a sudden, they literally drop dead, they have a heart attack, and it's over. And so these, you know, these, these kinds of deaths obviously make the news. And, you know, one wonders how common are they? Um, It turns out they're not very common. Overall, among student athletes, they're about one in 200,000. But in basketball, they're one in 7,000, which is a pretty significant difference. Difference. Now, so one way in which we can prevent these deaths entirely is by asking all athletes to get their hearts screened, because on an EKG, um, you can actually see the the deficiencies in the heart muscle that can cause this particular cardiac um, arrest. But the problem is, is that the false positive rate in these EKG exams is very high. So there are far more people that would be told that they have a heart problem when in fact they don't. So the question is, should we really have these screens? I mean, these screens can save the lives of these kids who are dying from heart attacks by simply saying, look, you've got a heart that doesn't mesh well with student athletics, so you shouldn't be doing them. And people can choose to not do the athletic activities that could lead to a heart attack. But we would also be telling many, many hundreds of people that they have this heart condition when in fact they don't. So here is exactly where science and society collide. So, you know, what do we do? Do we look at, do we tell these patients that they, that these, these athletes that they need to be screened or do we say, Hey, you know, every, each to his own and preventing someone from becoming an athlete is not a good enough reason to make a decision on this screen. I
2: this is such such a hard issue. And, you know, this is not the only case in which screening for a disease, oh, we can use this test, is not actually as good a thing as you might initially think because screening for disease, as you said, has risks. And this is a big issue just to, to bring in another area, prostate cancer where getting a PSA test can give you a false positive, and if you get false positives, you might then be told to get a biopsy, and that can have all kinds of side effects, and not to mention lots of stress and worry. So now the American Cancer Society actually advises doctors... Uh, It doesn't say just tell men to get screened. It says open a discussion about screening. And then it it says only even open that discussion for men who are of a certain age and known to have a certain risk profile. So the more we get these screening technologies, we're actually learning they're not always just an unmitigated benefit.
3: And of course, it gets even more complicated with the 23andMe story, right, where the FDA has said, hey, you know, you didn't follow our rules. And so you can't be giving out this medical information to the people that subscribe to 23andMe, um, well, you know, they get their DNA sequenced. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's, it's a hot issue right now. And I think that it's something that here at Inquiring Minds, we really need to watch.
2: Yep. I mean, science is letting us find out a lot of things, but, you know, wisdom is knowing the meaning uh, of all this data, not just having the data and saying, oh, test this, test this, test this. And that's really where it is hard when we're just overwhelmed with all this information and making good judgments about it is a whole different question.
3: Yep. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Ethan Perlstein. This episode is sponsored by the International Rescue Committee. You can help support them in providing medical care, clean water, education, and other assistance to millions uprooted by crisis in Syria, South Sudan, and around the world. Join Rescue Partners, the IRC's monthly giving program, and receive a tote bag. Learn more at rescue.org. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Ethan Perlstein.
1: Hello, pleasure to be here.
3: It's great to have you on the show. And this show is going to be a little bit different from any of our other shows because we're talking to you um, primarily not just about your research, but about how you actually do your research and your entire view of the scientific endeavor. So I want to first start out with just getting you to tell our listeners a little bit about your background um, in science. What were your ambitions going into it and how has that changed?
1: Sure. Uh, So so basically, I was dutifully on the the pre-tenure track for about 13 years in academia, starting out as a grad student uh, in 2001. Uh, Actually, first day of class was September 11th, and then was a postdoc after that for five years. And that kind of chapter of my life came to a close at the end of 2012, when I encountered what I've been calling the postdocalypse, which is this pretty bad uh, job market for for PhD trained, for for professionally trained uh, PhD uh, life scientists in particular. Um, And so it basically became very, you know, became clear that it would be very difficult to get an academic job sort of in a place that I wanted to live, where I wanted, where my wife wanted to live too, and, and where sort of I could balance, you know, professional and personal life. And so I realized, well, Maybe it's time to sort of exit academia and try something else, and I guess I'd always been kind of entrepreneurial um, as a as a as a scientist in academia, and so for me, it was always natural to to think about balancing basic and applied research programs and so I kind of knew for a while that I wanted to be on the west coast it's especially in the Bay Area it's since it's the number one biocluster you know in, in the world basically um, and so I thought well okay I guess I have to let go of this academic dream and just face the reality and and in the end I think it's been great and so for the last year I've been transitioning out of academia into this, what I guess is being called independent science or indie science mode, uh, and then also building a, a a mission-driven biotech startup that's focused now on orphan slash rare diseases, which was not what I was working on before, but it's something that has also helped me, I think, kind of enter this new chapter of my professional life, giving, giving a sort of real purpose to the science. So that's sort of it in a nutshell.
3: So what got you first interested in going into science to begin with, and, and what did you study?
1: Yeah, so I guess I, I guess I was always really interested in science. I mean my parents would always tell me that I was, you know, wanting to buy some biochemistry encyclopedia when I was a kid. So I guess I was always interested in that. And then I started grad school in, in in the in a department of molecular and cellular biology. Um and then ended up focusing a lot on pharmacology, I guess. How how do small molecules, whether they're drugs or just molecules that are active like natural products, you know, how do they work? And so I was always interested again in trying to balance basic and applied Approaches, And I thought if you worked on, you know, things like these small molecules, they have the potential to be drugs, but they also can simply act as really cool probes that you can use to, to play with cells and understand how they work.
3: So when I was in graduate school, I studied the brain. And, you know, I never really thought about my work as having an application that I could make a living off of, you know, certainly, I wanted to help people. And I felt like, okay, maybe this will help pe- people with different diseases. But it seems to me that going into small molecule work, you know, that that application there is always there. So is there a greater tendency for people who choose to go into molecular biology to also think about um, science as an entrepreneurial adventure?
1: I'm not sure. I mean, I think I was really, really privileged and lucky to, to be in a lab that was not only well-funded, but was run by a PI n- named Stuart Treiber, who seemed to effortlessly balance, you know, doing basic research, but also seeing the, the commercializability of, of particular ideas. So for me, I guess I was, I, and, and, I, and my first experience in a lab actually was as an intern in a small biotech company in South Florida where I grew up. So I guess for me, I always saw that it was possible to to do cur- curiosity-driven research that had a specific real-world purpose. So I guess I, again, I can only speak from my experience, and but you know, and I know from a lot of talking with a lot of colleagues that you know a lot of people s- t- seem to want to you know either make you in the basic research camp or in the applied research camp. Um, but again, I guess my perspective, since I was you know sixteen and uh, you know as an intern uh, in a small biotech, that that these can be blended, that the basic and applied approaches can be blended.
3: So what happened during or after your postdoc that really made you completely change your mind?
1: Well, I mean, part of it was just that, you know, I was, first of all, going through my own experience of doing, you know, a geographically targeted you know search for academic jobs you know on the west coast and, and sort of you know um mid-atlantic and such and realizing i wasn't getting an interview and interviews and thinking well okay i either need to apply to like 100 schools like a lot of my friends were doing and then even then i saw that they were only getting a couple of interviews and at that point it seemed to me kind of random you know among the six people who get or become the finalists how do you distinguish between them and so i just thought well i was going to spend two years on on this job search and then people sort of of mentors and other sort of senior people just saying, well, that's just de rigueur. you Are going to spend three or four years on the job search? And I just thought, well, you know, I feel like a lot of my contemporaries who didn't go into graduate school, you know, they're now executives in their whatever industry they're in and they have kids. And sort of I felt like like a lot of academics, you know, that, that stuff just kind of inevitably gets delayed as you're just consumed with the science and, and doing that stuff. And so I guess I just thought, well, I don't want to keep waiting anymore. The time I was 33 and thought, well, I'm also seeing the statistic that says that the average age at which an independent biomedical researcher gets their first big grant from the NIH is 43 or 42. I just thought another 10 years of just sort of waiting around for my turn of line. I just thought I I just don't want to do this. I I really want to have my science have meaning now. And, and, And so I just didn't want to wait.
3: Yeah, it reminds me a lot of, of the plight of a lot of singers, for example, too, where, you know, we spend so much time training and auditioning and literally like we put our lives on hold for a decade uh, in the hopes that the career will come to us later. And so just for people who don't know what the academic search uh, for a tenure track job is like, you know, essentially what you do is you apply to a job that's been posted. And so who knows how many jobs are posted in a given year? Somebody has to retire. Or there has to be an opening. Um, then, you you know, each job application each job gets like you know hundreds of applicants, and then they narrow it down to a short list who they they bring out for an interview. The person gives what we call a job talk, right, That's right. Where you talk about your research uh, and then out of those they pick one or they don't pick any at all.
1: That's right, sometimes they just let a a year go by and 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 the the position doesn't get filled uh but yeah, i mean i I kind of found out what those numbers were. I mean, some of the departments were kind enough to actually send it you know, a rejection letter. Many of them just said zero, you know, said nothing. It's so kind of leaving you on the hook. You have to end up being a lurker and looking on the website for l- listing of department talks to see, oh, job faculty candidate, not me. I guess I didn't get, get interviewed. But yeah, I mean, you're talking about, you know, I've seen some departments tell me and I've heard from, you know, accounts, you know, from sources on Twitter uh, that it's like, you know, 300 to 400 applicants. Now, yeah, even if only the top 10% of those applicants are quote unquote serious applicants, you're still talking about, you know, 30 to 40 people who, As far as I can tell, if you look at their CVs, you know their, their resumes and and where they publish and what they're doing. I don't know. It seems to me like these are all pretty, pretty you know, equal candidates, and so I don't know how these decisions end up getting made. But it's it's a pretty you know demoralizing process i mean unless you're one and there's always some star or two who like gets interviewed at every place and everyone sort of looks at them and thinks i don't know that that maybe they're going to be them but i don't know i felt like i had a pretty privileged pedigree and i still kind of slammed into a wall and it could have obviously just been me but the more i kind of see what the situation is like and how the landscape is not getting any better if it only seems to be getting more competitive uh yeah it just i just i just had to move on
3: it's just amazing to me how many parallels there are between you know science and and singing. Which people think, oh, singing—that's such a to make a living as an artist. That's such a sort of you know grad. It's it's, it's such a lofty thing, and so yeah. many so few people are going to make it, right? So you're, you know you're taking a risk. Um, and people look at me as as someone who has a singer who has a science degree as well. She did science as her backup plan, right. um, and it was very clear to me early on that this is not a backup plan. This is just as competitive, if not more competitive, than being a singer because those slots are so specific. Um, and there really is a you know you have to not only be the best candidate you also have to get along with all the members of the te- you know of the tenure track committee and the rest of the faculty because you know they're the ones it's a it's a peer review process. Um, so there's there's that component of it uh, that, yes, it's really hard to get a tenure track job. Uh, and there's certainly, you know, tons and tons of applicants. And but there's the other side of it where the you know, the the more successful the principal investigator or PI, essentially the larger his or her lab is. So now you have PIs who are very successful. So just as you said, it, it looks great on your pedigree because you've come from ex Nobel Prize winners lab. But that Nobel Prize winner has 10 postdocs That's right. going on the job market at any given time.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, and again, I think it ends up, what's so fascinating to me is that the scientists who are such empirical creatures, such data driven, data driven creatures seem to turn to like the equivalent of like the superstition you see in a a locker room where people are like wearing, you know, the the same glove or wearing this or that. And it's just sort of like, look at the data. And and I I don't know, it just seems to me that people are too kind of emotionally tied up in this because this is 10 years plus of your life devoted to this sort of one pivotal pivotal moment. Uh, And then, yeah, it's really easy to kind of be like, well, that person got the job because they just come from that big person's lab or they got this nature paper. And obviously I think there's lots of these correlations there, but but in the end, I think it's, you know, I've also heard the analogy, you know, of the competition in academia to the competition in professional sports to kind of build on what you said about the singing world, which I don't know, but, you know, the sports world I don't know personally either, but I'm a sports fan so I can see that, yeah, lots of people I'm sure dream of making it out of the minor leagues or out of the B leagues into the big times and very, very few get there and it's not always based on pure talent, it's also based on fit. And so you can see how people who are normally data-driven can be reduced to these irrational superstitions wondering, you know, what's it going to take? What do I have to do to, to get this job?
3: So one of the things that really differentiates, you know, sports or singing or, or the arts, et cetera, from science is that, in some ways, you know, as as artists or, sp- or professional athletes, we we care about our audience, right? And there's only so much time and money that an audience is going to spend going to sports events or going to the arts. So in some ways, that that's where the competition, that's where the bottleneck is. But presumably, there's almost a limitless possibility for science, right? I mean, science can improve our lives in so many different ways that it seems crazy to try to bot- put a bottleneck anywhere. Of course, we have to have good quality science, but sure. so it seems that the bottleneck is in terms of the funding.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the, you know Obama put out the latest, you know, 2015 budget for NIH flat again, you know, 30 billion. It's been sort of $30 billion, you know, ever since I basically entered grad school and, and I entered grad school, what I, what I think is part of this postdocalypse generation. I mean, it, it's obviously millennials and maybe a little bit new Gen Xers, you know, people who came up, you know, I graduate. I was in college in the late nineties when NIH budget, National Institutes of Health Budget was doubling. And so I remember someone telling me for the first time, they pay you to go to graduate school. Cause I had most of the friends I was, you know, I was, you know, I guess I was at Columbia is very pre-professional. Most people there were going to go to business school or, or doctor or lawyer. And, you know, obviously you have to pay to do that. And I'm thinking someone said to me, yeah, they pay you to going to graduate school. Um, but yeah, I think that this is, this is part of a, a generation that, uh, you know, has, has maybe, I don't know if they were sold a bill of goods because this is the debate that I hear a lot of people going back on, you know, this personal responsibility, you know, you enter grad school, you're over 18, you know, you should be able to sort of be able to think about and project years in advance. But then, you know, your mentors and the people who are sort of in the older postdocs, people who are a little ahead of you, you know, they're all kind of striving for the same thing and they reinforce this one particular worldview that it's basically academia or bust. And so it's very hard to kind of see beyond that and even have the resources to to get alternative points of view. But I think at this stage, People can just see that, that, you know, it's in crisis right now and, and it is rooted in, in the funding. And that's why I've turned to, I've, that's why I've experimented with other funding sources, you know, crowdfunding, but also, you know, angel investors and, and just sort of, you know, what are considered, I guess, non-traditional sources just because the, the, the existential pressure is so strong.
3: Yeah, I mean people talk about classical music as as dying, and I see some of the same trends in the science world as well, which is which is completely doesn't make any kind of sense. Um and you know, the other the other thing I wanted to talk a little bit about is, you know, this idea that when you leave academia, your peers, everybody you know, everybody looked up to, your mentors, they talk about you as if you've died. Oh
1: yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's
3: oh, yeah, he left academia. You know?
1: Oh, yeah. No, it's totally true. And then there's also that period before your sort of time is up. And maybe it's already, you know, everyone knows you're going to leave. And then it's not like you've died because you're still around. And then but I almost felt like I was was like I was a leper or something like no one wanted to talk to me or if they wanted to talk to me, it's like they wanted to scavenge some of my old equipment or something. And like, that's when they wanted to talk to me. So it was, you know, that last so yeah, once you've left you've, that, that, that period, of you've died, but there's even that period before then where, you know, I think it's everyone else kind of the scent of death is already there and, and everyone's really nervous as it is. And so, yeah.
3: So, okay. So let, let now that we've died, let's resurrect. <laughs> <laughs> and so what, what is, besides going into industry, which of course is what a lot of people do when they leave academia, they try to find a job as a research scientist, for example, at one of the big pharma companies, especially if they're, you know, in biopharma to begin with. Neuroscientists, we, you know, we might go and look for some kind of application of neuroscience, you know, a brain training game Lumosity. company, Lumosity, or, you know, something like that, and try to get a job there. Um, what What have you done that has completely broken the mold?
1: I feel like, I don't know, I, I've really, as I said, I've always tried to, to stay true to this idea that I want to pick... You know, research topics that balance basic and applied. And so I was working in pharmacology, also working, you know, with a genetic perspective. So for me, it was really clear how I could make a real application to, to some kind of therapeutic. Uh, but I think that it was, it's more than just that. To me, I, I really wanted to be driven by some kind of a mission. I think before my mission in life, you know, I was in grad school and academia, my mission, I mean, maybe this makes me sound kind of petty, but my mission was like to get a first author nature science cell paper. Like I would give in a left kidney for that. And like, and that was really what drove me. And, and I, I guess when I kind of hit rock bottom, you know, last year I thought, well, now I really need the science to, to be something, you know, more, I hate to say more pure, but, but something where it was, I could get up every morning and think, well, I want to work on something that really is going to matter. And it's not just going to sound trite. I want to try to change the world. I really did buy, I've really drunk that Kool-Aid by being out here in in startup land. Um, And so I guess, again, what fundamentally to me, I guess is different is that the desire not to give up this idea that I want to take the best elements of academia, the best elements of industry, try to make a business model that that is sustainable and then push forward, you know, toward a a real scientific objective. I mean, I call it a a rare disease moonshot because there's 7,000 of these rare diseases and there's, sort of the lowest hanging fruit in terms of, you know, human diseases, because they tend to be really strongly genetic, um, you know, uh, in terms of what's, what's driving them. And so, you know, as opposed to these other diseases that are more genetically complex and also multifactorial in terms of environment. So I just really wanted to break the mold in terms of trying to tr- prove that you could take the best elements of the, the pieces that exist today in the academia pharma complex, as I sometimes called it, and, and forge a new kind of model.
3: So tell me a little bit more about the sort of specifics of this idea. So the idea as I understand it is almost to have like a crowd-funded science endeavor, right? Where you know, you're not you're not looking for um Venture capitalists that just want to make money to fund your biotech startup. You're not looking for government funding the way the major academic institutions do. Here you are basically saying to the world, I have this idea that I think is going to make your lives better. You should give me money in advance
1: yeah I mean, I think part of it is uh, I talk about kind of reviving the tradition of patronage, and I think that always is a it's for some people that's a trigger word, and I think they they just kind of get images of like the European leisure class, which was you know white male aristocrats who in their spare time were you know forming royal societies and doing all these experiments. That's not the part that I want to bring back. The part I want to bring back is that I want to be in a system that's not dependent on on grants and in a funding climate that is increasingly uncertain uh and so yeah, I, I talk about this as, as patronage and, and maybe some people would say, well, that's just another way of saying angel investors, for example. And, and, you know, and, and crowdfunding itself is sort of, you know, not necessarily a new idea. So I think that the, the, the real sort of. Change here is this emphasis on, well, on the one hand, we're told that if you're doing a biotech, you know, VCs have this very strict, you know, they want an exit and they want an exit in five years and they want to make, you know, five to eight X and otherwise, you know, no dice. And the academics are, well, you can only fund this through a grant, but then we know that that's catastrophic. So, so yeah, I think it's really just, again, trying to take the best of, of ideas that already exist and, and maybe modernizing some older ideas and just, and just plowing forward.
3: So essentially you're starting up an independent lab. Ethan Perlstein scientist of Ethan Perlstein labs or whatever yes. <laughs> yeah. you want to call it and you're saying to the world I don't need to be affiliated with an academic institution to do great science and I don't need to necessarily have an exit to make you know in terms of the VCs to, to fund what I want to do so here you are about to set up your own lab where do you begin and what are your challenges
1: yeah, I mean the the the, the first I mean, well, there's so many challenges, right, in terms of actually finding these angels and patrons and people who buy into this idea. Um, you know, but then there are also sort of just kind of more mundane challenges, like where where would it, where would one set up this kind of a shop? And it turns out, again, I think the the Bay Area for me was a really great choice because there's a lot of innovation in that regard on in, in terms of how do you flatten the playing field between you know the quote unquote garage tech startup and the and the quote unquote garage biotech startup. And so I'm so Pearlstein Lab is actually part of the QB3. Quantitative Biosciences Three Network, which is you know involved with UCSF and, and Berkeley and, and UC Santa Cruz, to you know g- uh, to uh, sponsor entrepreneurship, and they actually create these incubator spaces where you can rent lab space, you know, a bench, bench worth of space, you know, one person's, you know, work area for, you know, 800 or whatever it is per month. And so that makes, that makes the challenge of actually, you know, being able to start this up a little bit easier. You don't have to go out and just go to to some industrial park and find this huge 5,000 square foot space and take the burden on yourself. So, so that's really been helpful to kind of, uh, have, have that infrastructure already existing in a place like the Bay Area. Then of course, there's also, you know, recruiting people and, and sort of, um, you know find, finding that team, and I've actually found that social media, twitter, and, and blogging has been tremendously useful in terms of helping me not only brand myself so that I, I could actually say that I don't have to have the dot the, the famous dot, e, dot edu address you know behind my name to to get people to notice me uh, I've really been able to leverage i think social media, and so have a lot of other people that I've been inspired by to go out there, spread the word, and find like minded folks
3: so in some ways. When you get a grant from, you know, the NIH or some government organization, there's actually money in there to pay for the rental of the bench, right? They actually right. pay a lot of money to the academic institution in order to do this grant. And mm-hmm. that's one of the things that's so frustrating about these grants is that you get a $100,000 grant, but 80000 goes, you know, for your telephone and your desk and your, yeah, your, the and indirect your lab equipment. costs. Yeah, yeah, the indirect costs. So what you're doing here is you're kind of bypassing that and, and actually paying what you think the market would bear for that bench
1: space. Absolutely. And and a place like QB three, they itemize everything. So if you want to use the autoclave to sterilize something, you have to pay per run. Or if you and, you and then if you want to buy things in batch, they give you that option. So I think it really allows for, especially a startup that's, you know, that wants to be capital efficient and is constrained by by capital, it allows them to, I think, spend that money as efficiently as they theoretically can.
3: But so when you're affiliated with an academic institution, you already have a certain um open door, you know, that you can get supplies for, you can get to conferences, you can get your papers published, it's a little bit easier, etc. You have that credential. So here, you don't have that. So like, let's say you wanted to do a study on LSD. How how would you get them to send you drugs?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some, you know, element of hacking that has to happen where you you don't have those doors opening, and you just have to, you know, make connections or, or hustle to, to compensate. Um, and so yeah, I mean, I, and that happens, for example, all the time now that I'm on, now that I'm part of the paywall 99%, you know, the mass Who don't actually get access to all these great journals? You know, I have to resort to things like you know I can have PDF to to have people send me papers. Uh, So there is definitely ways to kind of have that hacker philosophy and and hustle to to compensate, but it, it certainly is a lot more work.
3: Yeah. So just people who don't know that you, if you, I believe if you tweet the hashtag, I can has PDF with the name of the, just the title or the link of to the, the, oh, the link, somebody, somebody who actually is in academia will send it to you, which shh, don't tell the publishers. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But yeah, that's the way we get around. And, you know, I think there's also obviously a a parallel movement in terms of open science and, and making sure that. A lot of these papers are available to the general public, um, in part because of what you're talking about. There are a lot of great minds out there that are not affiliated with academic institutions that could really be making inroads in science. Absolutely. So now you've got your lab bench and you've maybe got one or two employees that you've, that you've convinced they should work <laughs> with you, even though you know, you don't have quite the you know, stability of a grant, although, of course, grants are time limited as well. How now do you, and let's say you've done used crowdfunding to raise, you know, a million dollars, a hundred thousand, whatever it is. Um, How, how now do you move forward from there? Because presumably, you know, patrons are going to get tired if they don't see results and science takes a long time to generate results. So how do you juggle that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that part of it is just, um, you know, I've been a big fan of open science. And to me, that's always been about outreach in real time, because I feel like, yes, people will get bored. Partly because in the in the current system, you know, there's not only such a delay in when something gets published, um, you know, most most people don't necessarily have access to see it. So they, so you know the average citizen who's crowdfunding through their taxes, you know, is not really seeing the, the result of what's happening. So I can see how they either get bored or pseudoscience ends up filling the gaps. So sort of my take on open science is I want to flood the internet with, you know, positive science SEO and, and put out put out research in real time so that people can actually start to judge and, and evaluate things as, as results are trickling in. So that's something that we want to sort of cue to. So uh, in terms of using Twitter and blog you know, to keep people up to date. Now, obviously, I'm not in an academic context where there's pure freedom and you know, have to worry, you have to worry in a, in a company about proprietary concerns, but I, I still think open science can thrive in, you know, in a. A quote unquote, you know, in a business model, because uh, you know, the, the reality is, um, you know, people, patrons, whoever, investors, you know, they, especially if they're not just driven by the bottom line, you know, I think they want to be, they want to be compelled to, to be engaged and we have to provide that, that, that data for them. So that's, that's something that we sort of are building into the, into the model going forward.
3: So when you're affiliated with an academic institution, there are sort of already checks and balances in the institution that will prevent you from doing presumably unethical experiments. For example, because there's the human rights board or or the ethics committee that you need to get your ideas passed by. Um, and then there's also this kind of understanding that you there were some hurdles that you need to jump over in order to get the job to begin with. So you know you have some barriers to entry that you know presumably everybody now who has a faculty position is X amount has X amount of talent or smarts or whatever. Um, now, in your model, we don't have those checks and balances, right? Not only do you not have an ethics committee that you're necessarily responsible to, um, but we also don't know, you know, is Ethan a good scientist? Does the science coming, is the science coming out of his lab good science if, you know, it's not following this other model? So how do we keep from, you know, just a lot of charlatans opening up their labs and flooding the market with useless science?
1: Yeah, I mean, on, on the ethics point, one, one quick thing, you know, the, the, the approach that we're taking doesn't involve human subjects or even mammals, as a matter of fact. So our, our platform to do our, to do our orphan drug discovery is based on simple organisms like yeast, worm and fly, where we actually don't need regulatory approval. So that, that's sort of that part. But in terms of the how do you know to take this someone seriously, I can tell you for a fact, having been fundraising for some time, you know, to not only just VCs, but, but to, to angels as well. You know, it's very hard to get them to take you seriously. And when one does, generally that itself is the sign of validation. So, I mean... I welcome any charlatan to try to convince someone to part with, say, a million dollars of their money, uh, you know, based on a ruse. I mean, maybe it's going to happen once or twice, but I think that 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 alone already sets up for some for some checks and balances. But I think the the real the reality is that you know if you're a branded entrepreneur or branded anything, a branded expert, you're going to be judged ultimately by your content, and you can pull the wool over someone's eyes for only so long. Uh, but ultimately, you're going to be exposed, and so I, I feel like I think there is always there always must be vigilance in the system to detect fraud and charlatan. But I I do think that if the system is is built on uh, open rules, that ultimately you can't carry on a charade forever. Um, And all it takes is actually one sort of instructive, you know, bad, bad apple to then make everyone even more vigilant. So I'm not too worried about the the charlatans sort of stealing, stealing the thunder here. I think that when you're dealing with the public and and especially when you're dealing with sort of these alternative funding sources, like angels or patrons, they're really smart people. And, And so to convince them yeah uh, to me is is it's like crossing the same hurdle as it takes to to get an academic job
3: so one marker could be the amount of money that someone could raise or um you know their longevity so how long and and these are these are markers that we look at you know small companies all the time right how long has it been in business how much money were they able to raise um so now that but crowdfunding still is is a relatively new thing right we see it in the arts we see it you know people want to make a film they they go to kickstarter etc so Do you think that this is a lasting new endeavor or do you think that crowdfunding is going to go out of style?
1: I mean I think the kind of crowdfunding that's descended from the telephone you know model which is basically what we ha- which kick- what Kickstarter really is today it's just sort of the online version of what Jerry you know Jerry Lewis was doing I think that k- that, that kind of spectacle part of crowdfunding is probably going to get boring and, and tired uh, but I do think that what will replace it is, is more a more stable subscription type model and then someone that I'm really inspired by is a blogger named Andrew Sullivan um, I'm not sure if you know but about his sort of past but you know he seemed to have I don't know I forget if he was with the Daily Beast, but before that, you know, what his sort of more mainstream commentator status was. Uh, but but he, he broke free and went indie last year and essentially converted all those you know readers that he has and his team has to sort of paid subscribers. And I think it's one ninety-nine a month, you know, is their minimum you know ask. And so I feel like the the whole, you know, 24 hours left to fund our campaign yeah that's people are going to grow there's going to be fatigue around that but i think that that eventually the people who maybe just have one-off success you know are going to make that that spectacle kind of boring but then they're going to be the people who then come back the second third time and they're going to realize they don't want to have to do it on kickstarter they can do it on their own site and then once they have their own their own fans and their own patrons they're just going to basically monetize that and so i feel like that's going to be the next evolution of crowdfunding
3: So crowdfunding, of course, depends primarily on there being a crowd. And you've chosen to study orphan diseases, which presumably have a small (laughs) set of patients. So, you know, what made you choose orphan diseases to begin with? And also, are you worried that you're picking diseases that don't have a massive market?
1: So I think that, um, so if you just have to look at the end of last month, that February 28th was rare disease day. And in terms of yes, any, any one individual rare disease might, might only have a patient community across the world of say 6,000 or fewer, but, you know, testifying before Congress was, you know, well, Seth Rogan was talking about Alzheimer's, but, but Johnny Lee Miller was talking about a, a group of, uh lysosomal storage diseases, which we're focused on called San Filippo. And, you know. This is a pretty big, pretty big name. And so I feel like, yes, individually, the orphan disease communities are small, but they're realizing their own potential uh, by 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 kind of you know, grouping together. So I think that um, in terms of the marketing part of that, that actually makes it much easier to reach this, this group of people, because there's just more and more rare awareness that any one of these rare disease communities exist in your backyard. Um, so, yeah, so I think the, the real challenge is on the business model side, can you, can, you, can you build a drug company that can, you know, make drugs uh, that only, you know, anticipate, you know, 3,000 or fewer patients in the U.S.? Uh, and I think that's a separate question that we believe we're trying to address. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, the, the real thing that drove me to orphan diseases was, was thinking as a geneticist, what is the lowest hanging fruit of, the, of, the, of, of human disease? And someone who had studied the simple model organisms as an entree into c- to complex systems, I thought, well, let's... let's... Let's just pair the simplest of diseases with the simplest of models and just see what happens and start there because everything else is going to be way more complex. Uh, And I also am a big believer, and a lot of people say this as well, that when you study orphan diseases, that will sort of serendipitously shed light on, on more common diseases because the pathways that are going to be broken in rare diseases are sometimes going to be broken in common diseases too.
3: So what, what makes rare diseases less complex than a common disease?
1: I think part of it is that, you know, in the case of the simplest of the, these simple diseases, these so-called Mendelian diseases, where there's really one broken gene, and it's the case like cystic fibrosis typifies this, where you have, you know, two parents that um, are carriers, they don't know that they're carrying one broken copy and one good copy, and then there's a 25% chance that their offspring, their kids, will have, will have the disease. So it's simple in the sense that there is one trigger. Now, that doesn't mean that there's only one genetic element in involved and there's no environmental factors. That's not true. There there are other genetic uh, there, are other, there are other mutations called modifiers that can that can alter the time of onset or the severity of the disease so it's not just really boiling down to one single gene and of course there are environmental things that can make things wor- worse probably not suppress the, the onset of the disease but so but, but compared to say Alzheimer's where we know uh, or, or you know or, or cancers that are not just driven like by some one broken you know uh, by one oncogene or something you know you're already dealing with things that are way more complex genetically and then there's going to be way more you know uh, environmental impacts. And there might even be impacts from the microbiome and all this other stuff that we're, we're all now getting sensitive to. So that's why when I say it's simplest, I say I mean it because it really can be genetically defined, uh, you know, really with just even sim- the simplest kind of toy models that Mendel was using to describe, you know, how the traits that he was looking at were being passed down.
3: So obviously, you're in co- competition with big pharma. Um, because they have their own labs and academia, which in some ways is even more massive, right? Because it's, it's, a, it's a huge force of how science is, is done in our, at least our country, but in most of the westernized world. But there are so many more of you, people who didn't get the tenure track job, that are still fascinated by science, that want to participate in the scientific endeavor. So do you see a tipping point at some point in the future where there are going to be more kind of startup garage labs um, creating, making science than Coming signs coming out of academia or big pharma.
1: Definitely, I mean, I see again in the Bay Area, this is happening. A friend of mine, Ryan Bethancourt, has a has a new kind of hackubator, which is a blend between these hacker spaces, which are seem to be more focused on just teaching the average, you know, Joe and Jane how do you even do biology versus the QB three situation where I have, which is you know much more formalized in that sense. You're they're really accepting startup companies, so that that. That evolution and innovation is already happening where, you know, the whole the whole goal of this Berkeley BioLabs is uh, to, to essentially get, you know, even postdocs or grad students to c- kind of come in there with their idea and have a space to tinker with kind of low, low barrier entry and, and to see if something would take off. So, I, and then on top of that, I, I see every day or not every day, but, you know, very, very frequently that, that a, a, some kind of a hackubator or something along that lines of a garage biotech is springing up, you know, in cities across the country. I mean, New York now has its first, you know, biotech incubator that's like the QB3 uh, called Harlem Biospace. But then on the other coast, you know, in Seattle, there's a a group called Hive Bio, which was started by two really young scientists, including one high schooler. And they're more focused on this, you know, a a true community biolab, bring people in just, you know, enable citizen science, science and then see what happens from there. So I see this, and there's a whole spectrum, and there have been several articles written about this. There's a whole spectrum of, of, of sort of varieties in between uh, in terms of, you know, how much, what's the ratio essentially between professionally trained and citizen scientists. But I just see that there's just more and more innovation going to be happening. The tipping point, I would have thought the tipping point was two years ago, but I'm in, an, I'm clearly in a bubble. <laughs> uh,
3: yeah, I mean, I still think, you know, I think the model to look at that's close, most, most close to this is the idea of the big newspapers, right? The big new Newspapers have had to change because of the bloggers, because of the citizen journalists, and it's certainly true that academia and big pharma are still the major players in science. But we could be coming in the next couple decades into a reversal of that and, and an invasion of excited citizen scientists.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you saw this, the Vox, uh, Vox.com folks, like Ezra Klein and these other others who are these branded experts who I guess were working for Washington Post or whatever, decided, hey, you know, we can we can do this ourselves, and so I I, I, mean, I think that that where journalism is today uh, is a good example of where academia is going to be. And I hope it's not decades. I hope it's sooner. Um, again, you'd think that with funding the way it is and, and just with, you know, you don't see new universities opening up that are going to absorb all these people. Um, what's it going to take? But I think that what I've kind of realized over the last few years is that, you know, uh, I guess people just have this incredible tolerance for for a crappy situation that they really do do feel like they alone cannot do anything about, um, and I really feel for them. But I think that I've just taken comfort in the global support group that is Quitter to, to figure out that there are people who are thinking, uh, you know, along different lines, and and you know are willing to take some risks and and willing to share the risk to to try something new.
3: Yeah, I think, I think the problem is, is that, you know, science has become so expensive to do as it's a technology has improved and increased. Um, so for example, in my world, I'd have to figure out how to get access to an MRI machine, which is, you know, f- millions of dollars. And so now as you're talking about these incubators where you share space just the way you would in an academic department, it seems really exciting. Like, why can't we throw an MRI scanner into one of these spaces and we just pay per hour?
1: There there are options like that actually already. There's a there's a startup called Science Exchange based in Palo Alto which is actually trying to address this this question of they basically take people who want experiments done say on a really expensive machine that they can't afford to buy or don't want to buy because it's only a few things and they pair them with providers who maybe a core facility or, or a contract research organization that has this equipment or this expertise and allows essentially scientists to, to bid uh, or yeah, essentially allow them to, to, to have somebody, uh, you, know, uh, you know, pay someone to do this for them. So I think that already is generating more and more flexibility in terms of how what kind of spaces need to be built to have the minimum viable product of a, of a biotech company.
3: Well, it's an exciting future. And it's exciting for us to have someone who is at the forefront on Inquiring Minds. So thanks for being on Inquiring Minds, Ethan Perlstein.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
2: So interestingly, Ethan Perlstein represents a very important trend that we have to watch. And It's certainly, you know, not just limited to biomedical science. So, for instance, there is this really awesome scientist named Jason Box. He's kind of an adventurer scientist, and he studies Greenland and what's happening to it, a.k.a. it's melting. And he had this theory, which was that basically the soot deposition from really large wildfires was landing on the Greenland ice sheet and because soot is dark, it was basically helping trap heat and melt it even faster. a Feedback. Fires leading to more melting, right? And basically, I don't know exactly what happened with trying to get funding for this research, but he decided to go out to the public and crowdfund for what he called the Dark Snow Campaign. And he had all these videos online and he had Bill McKibben, the great environmental activist, I think was in one of them. And he raised a bunch of money. And I think he then went out to the ice sheet to do the science that, uh, you know, wasn't getting funded another way. So this is happening all over the place.
3: Yeah, I mean, crowdfunding is becoming more popular in science. And, you know, like crowdfunding in any other industry, it's got its limitations. You know, people are not going to continue to fund, um, your lab if they don't get something out of it or they don't see it as a worthwhile project. And so, you know, sustaining a lab with crowdfunding is, is difficult, if not impossible. But the point is, is that there are alternatives to just going through the academic track to do basic science. And I think that that's something that, you know, with, if people put their creative minds to it, you know, we could get a lot lot of really interesting scientific studies coming out of this new model. And, you know, I, I don't know what the consequences are, are going to be, whether it's going to be good science or not very good science, or if it's just going to, you know, give us more information that is harder to assess. Um, but certainly, it seems like it's going to be an outlet for a lot of people who want to do science who just don't want to stay in academia.
2: Well, definitely some some good science is going to result, and. In the meantime, now I know how to get a free PDF from Iken has PDF. So that was pretty awesome. Thank you for that.
3: (laughs) Always trying to be useful.
2: (laughs) Yes. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds.
3: And once again, this episode was sponsored by the International Rescue Committee. Help support them in providing medical care, clean water, education, and other assistance to millions uprooted by crisis in Syria, South Sudan, and around the world. Join Rescue Partners, the IRC's monthly giving program, and receive a tote bag. Learn more at rescue.org. To find us online, visit ClimateDesk.org. And you can also find us on Twitter at InquiringShow and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast.
2: Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney.
3: And I'm Indre Viscontis.